Hey everyone, welcome back to Fill the Teapot, a podcast sharing stories and conversations from inspiring change makers, brand builders, and voices from the Asian American community. I'm your host, Ruchi Avasti, and in each episode, I sit down with a guest I'm inspired by to chat about their relationship with identity and culture, what inspires their work, and everything in between. In today's episode, I am chatting with Dr. Somia Dave. Somia is a board-certified psychiatrist, author, and co-founder of the women's health nonprofit, This Is For Us. In her private practice, she uses a multidisciplinary approach to work with individuals and groups and has seen the power of supportive and culturally sensitive conversations. She is also an adjunct professor at Mount Sinai, where she teaches a narrative medicine class. Her writing has been featured in the New York Times, Refinery29, ABC News, and many more. Her first novel, Well-Behaved Indian Women, which we discuss in today's episode, came out last June and explores mental health in an immigrant family. In the time since we recorded this episode, her second novel, What a Happy Family, was published and continues the themes from her first, including cultural, familial, and societal expectations in addition to mental health. The topic of mental health, which Somia and I talk about in today's episode, is something I would love to continue to share with y'all in conversations. So know that today's episode is just a first step into diving deep into that topic and sharing so much more that I can't wait to further explore. I'm so excited for y'all to take a listen to this episode. So go grab your cup of tea and let's get started. gosh. Well, I'm so excited that we get to chat today. Um, I'm really excited just because I obviously love your work and I think everything you do is just incredible. And we've actually chatted before um, for a different piece of work that I was doing on Camille Stiles' site, but um, I'm excited to get to know more about you and your work Um, and everything that you do. So Oh, thank you so much. I can't wait. Yay. Well, we always start by kind of just going back to the beginning. I'd love to just kind of know for you, um, how did your identity and your culture kind of impact the way you grew up and kind of the subsequent paths that you took from there? Sure. I think that identity and culture played a role in every single thing I did in big and in small ways. And it's interesting because when I look back, I'll also see things that I may not have put together as a child. I think as a child, you're just trying to get through and you're, you're really in touch with your environment and what's going on. But, but I don't think you often have that ability to process until you really look back and put things together. And when I do have that chance to look back and have conversations with family and friends, I see that culture played a role in everything. Um, in the things that we were able to do and the things we were unable to do. I think my parents really were so focused on survival and making sure that we had a good education and that we did things in a certain way to be accepted in this country um, that we all really wanted to be accepted in. So that did come in the form of being able to do certain things and also having certain things withheld from us. I think you said that really well. And um, I think one of the things I talked to Pooja Bhavishi from Malai, um, and one of the things we talked about was how our parents' path and how them coming here so affected the way that we grew up too, because for them, like you're right, like it was about surviving, adapting. It was so much of them coming to a new place and not having everything they had before and kind of how that subsequently affects the way that we grew up. So. Totally. And I think it comes out so much in in all types of behaviors, but definitely in that idea of taking risks Mm -hmm. and and what we do and don't pursue. Yeah. So I know for my parents, um, they're, they're very risk averse because mm-hmm. to them, they, they couldn't afford the luxury of thinking outside the box. They had to make it through and they had to make sure more importantly for them that their kids made it through. So a lot of that came in stability and financial practicality mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah, that's so true. And I think, um, yeah, I, I was even talking to someone else. I'm like, it's so interesting to me. I love having these conversations um, because I'm like, we, not that I didn't know that we all kind of shared similar experiences, but the more conversations 
you have about it, the more it's like comforting in a way where you're like, oh, like I, I knew we were all going through it, but in a way I also felt like I was dealing with those experiences of like risk aversion and like what my parents wanted me to do. Like, and then when you talk to other people about it, you're like, no, like we actually all kind of did experience very similar things. And it's so comforting to know that sometimes. Yeah. I think what's so great about what you're doing is that when people listen, they'll see that they're not alone. And that is such yeah. a powerful thing, especially during a year like this, but all oh the time. Gosh, it's totally. Such a powerful thing. totally. Um, okay. So we're going on this path. You are a psychiatrist now. What was yeah. the journey to getting here? What was um, your path through school like? What drew you to psychiatry? How did we get to today? So it's funny, I went to medical school because I thought I wanted to be an OBGYN. I always was so fascinated by women's stories, women's health, and so I thought that was the perfect fit. But when I was in medical school, so during our third year, we do our clinical rotations where we get a six to eight week glimpse into each specialty. And I found that my favorite part of each rotation was being able to talk to people and their families and just learn about their stories. I loved listening to people. My favorite part was actually taking the patient's history uh, where we learned about all of their different health conditions, their family's health conditions, their social structure, all of those sorts of things. And, and I found myself missing that when I couldn't do it as much in certain rotations. And so by the end of my third year, which is when I did psychiatry, I discovered that this is what you do as a psychiatrist. You learn people's stories, you see where you can play a role in their stories. And it was the most perfect fit. And so I changed my mind from OBGYN to psychiatry uh, right at the right time. So we actually had to declare right before our fourth year started. So it worked out in that sense. But when I came home right before our wedding, I found a diary entry from seventh grade where I wrote, I'm going to be a psychiatrist and writer one day. Wow which was so surreal to see that because that ended up happening. And somehow my 12th grade complete social outcast self knew. And, and, and I think I lost sight of that somewhere along the way. And um, so it was really fun just kind of seeing that somewhere younger Sylvia knew that this is what she wanted to do. So then I did my psychiatry residency for four years in New York at Mount Sinai. And then I have my own private practice now. I love that. I think it's always so funny how looking back and especially for me now, cause I'm back home where I grew up and yeah. it's so funny, right? When you go through like old journals or the stuff that's in your old room, you're like, mm-hmm. it's, it's crazy how some of it comes full circle. Totally. Um, I think it's such a great thing for, for us to do anytime is to look through yeah. our old things and just see, you know, who were we as children and, and how does that align or not align with who we are now? Cause I think we can learn so much by looking back. For sure. Did you, did you know, like, what was it about medicine? I know you obviously switched from OBGYN to psychiatry, but what was it about medicine that kind of drew you to the field? Um, I know a lot of people are always like, oh, you're not a doctor. Um, like all these different, like we're expected to be doctors. Right. But I'm like, was it like a cultural, like your parents wanted you to be doc, be a doctor or like, did you like, what was that path like for you? It was definitely a mix of things. So my dad and then both of my grandfathers, my maternal and paternal grandfathers, all are physicians. So I grew up just hearing about hospitals and clinics and patient care, uh, and they all love, love, love their careers. So, so I grew up seeing it as a very fulfilling and rewarding career that gave you a lot and taught you a lot. So, so I was always drawn to it just because of hearing those stories. But I would say, you know, if I'm being completely honest in, in looking back and the things I've realized about myself, I would say that, that then when I would tell people, even in high school, that, oh, I want to be a doctor, I would get this positive feedback about mm-hmm. it. And I would get the social approval. And I think that myself back then definitely took pride in that and thought, okay, I'm on the right path because 
people are saying this is the right thing to do. And somewhere along the way, I think I really held on to that. And, and there was a time in medical school where I wondered if this was really what I wanted to do, or was it something that other people told me mm -hmm. I had to do? And it wasn't until actually coming on psychiatry that I realized this is, this is the field I really see myself in. But there was a period of time where I was very confused, even when I was yeah. pretty set on that path. Yeah. Um, I'm curious because, okay, so if we come to, you know, you're switching your focus area, you're looking into psychiatry as you're going through the psychiatry path, I'm curious. Cause again, you're kind of like, you know, as I look back, I kind of like peel these layers of who I was and how I was thinking about things. I don't know a ton about what you actually learn when you're studying to be a psychiatrist. Were you kind of learning to unpack some of the stuff and unlearn and learn some of the stuff from, you know, your youth as you were growing up, as you were going through the psychiatry field? Yes, absolutely. I think that's so insightful that you asked that because I didn't anticipate that at all. And then during my training, um, my program was very heavily focused on therapy training in addition to medication management training. So during the therapy portion of it, um, we actually have to ask ourselves certain questions and, and answer questions about our own family dynamics and our upbringings. And actually when we learned family therapy, we had to bring in legitimate family trees uh, that traced all the way back to our oh, great, wow. great grandparents. And, and we had to talk about traits that they may have had that got passed down. And, and I think those were some of the only opportunities I had taken in my entire life um, at that point to really look at those relationships and to see, well, how does, how does the way your great grandparent, you know, experience things affect the way you may, how, how do those things get passed down and how do they shape us? So absolutely. I think that unexpectedly going through the therapy part of my training, really forced me to take a look at certain things. And that of course poured into my writing as well. Mm -hmm. That idea that the way our relationships are really shape how we react to things, the way we pursue things, um, the way we may not pursue things. So definitely my, my training shaped me in ways personally that I would not have expected. I thought it would be a completely professional thing and it ended up bleeding into other parts of my life. Was that like, I'm assuming, cause you know, a lot of people, a lot of my friends who go to therapy will be like, well, it's not necessarily fun. Like it's uncomfortable no. to unpack those things. Did you experience that same thing as you were going through the process? Like, did you unpack those like uncomfortable feelings, thoughts, memories? Like, what was that like for you? Oh, absolutely. I found that, that it was very uncomfortable at many points. And I learned that going to therapy often doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. You know, there are times where it might, but I think I had this notion before my training that, oh, you go to therapy, you talk about yourself for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour routinely, and you feel better. You feel like you're talking to a friend. And while it sometimes may be that way, it might feel cathartic and it might feel comforting to do that. There are also times where when you're really digging deep, it might be unpleasant and it might be scary. Um, and it might be much more natural to want to avoid those things. So, so it definitely taught me that that it's really not one thing or the other. Getting to know ourselves can be really scary yeah. and especially getting to know ourselves honestly and our families honestly can be quite a scary thing. And, and it's a lot of work too, to really sit there with your thoughts and your emotions and let them pass through you. It's a lot more work than I realized it was to unpack all of that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely not pleasant to be totally right. honest with yourself sometimes. Um, and you brought up something that's really interesting. And one of the next questions that I actually had, which was, which is in relation to how we think about mental health and our experiences in the diaspora and in talking about, you know, how our family and our family history impacts the way we were. I saw this graphic on Instagram because I spend so much time scrolling. Um, <laughs> and one of the things I saw, hang on, I'm going to pull it up because I thought it was really interesting and I'd like to dissect it a little bit because there's sure. some stuff I don't quite understand, which 
I've also come to the realization that if I don't understand something, there's probably other people that also don't quite understand it. Um, It was, it was a graphic about intergenerational trauma. One, I want to break down what this word trauma actually means, Mm -hmm. because I hear that a lot where it's like, oh, I'm working through like some of my old traumas and things like that. And I'm like, does it like, what does that word trauma actually mean in this context? Mm -hmm. And then the second part where we look specifically at intergenerational like traumas for, you know, children of immigrants and in the diaspora where it's like, um, I think they had broken it down to like our grandparents, specifically um, South Asian had gone through things like the partition of India in 1947, um, the liberation war, oppression, patriarchy, like poverty, like all these different things, right? And then that cycles down, there's an arrow, it goes down to like our parents where, you know, I think a lot of people, especially where we think of like our Asian parents, where it's like, they're, they're not so touchy feely. Like they were never taught to be that growing up. Um, and so there's like that whole suppressed part of who they are. And then it comes down to us and how we, um, as kids kind of seek approval and like have identity confusion and all this different stuff and how all of this ladders down. Can we dissect that a little bit? Because I, it seems so like, one, two, three step. And I'm like, how did these actually like ladder down and how are we supposed to think about these things? Sure. Um, so I think I saw that graphic as well a few weeks back. Um, and I thought it was so fascinating. I'm, I'm so glad you brought it up because trauma really has to do with how we respond to an experience that happened to us, you know, because sometimes people can have the same experience, but the way they respond to it can be very different. You know, with that being said, there are certain things that happen that, that negatively impact most people. And so in thinking about the grandparents in that graphic, things like partition and things that happen on this really widespread systemic level seem to have had a pretty significant impact on that generation of people in maybe in different ways, but there was an impact in some way. Right. Um, and it really makes me think back to, I don't know if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in that pyramid that Maslow talks about how the base of that pyramid is just having your basic needs fulfilled, like shelter, safety, comfort. And then as we go up, the needs change. And so that diagram actually makes me think of how one generation really did just have to survive and have the sense of safety and identity. Mm-hmm. The next generation then maybe was able to provide a little bit more of security. And then the next generation, ours, is able to think about things like identity and what our places in the world, what our purpose is yeah. in the world. Um, and they're really all linked. So I, I do agree that, you know, maybe it's hard to, to really put all that in a diagram. So, right. so I think that, you know, what the artist was doing was really showing maybe one potential. Like really simplifying it so we can like yeah. start to think about it, right? Yeah, which I think is awesome. Um, and I think we do need more of that out there. But, but yeah, I think that it really just shows how one event that was experienced by one generation can manifest, can be internalized. And then, and then the way they did or did not act can impact the subsequent generation. Because I've heard that that term that you brought up about people not being affectionate, their parents maybe not mm-hmm. being as touchy-feely. I've heard that so, so often with people I see in practice and that the way we even express our affection is different generation to generation. So we wonder, you know, what emotional responses do we feel we were and were not able to have um, at different periods of time? And if we were born in that period of time, would we have had to suppress yeah. those things too in order to survive and fit in and to really focus on the things that we felt we needed to focus on. Totally. And I think you brought up a really important clarifier. Like, yes, like something like this is very like a blanket statement, right? And it's like, we all experience things very differently. Like I'm super lucky that like my parents are generally very emotionally open and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, no one's perfect, but like we personally 
had at least that one thing, right? But it's like, how do we, I guess in your opinion, how do we start to like break these cycles? I know I see that phrase a lot where it's like break Mm -hmm. the cycle. How do we start to think about that in terms of mental health and identity and kind of moving forward for the next generation? Well, I feel that even asking that question is a step to breaking that cycle. So I've always felt that conversations create change, um, whether it's on you know one person to one person level or a family level or, or a greater level than that. I think conversations really do shift things. And it only takes one person to break a cycle in a family. And that's something that in family therapy is often emphasized that, you know, sometimes people will think that a family goes because, because there's one person who really is causing a lot of the conflicts in a family. And what they'll often learn is that everybody plays a role. Everybody impacts everybody else. And, and it's that one person who maybe actually got them to have those tough conversations Mm -hmm. and to face those truths um, about each other. So they could have a more honest relationship I personally have felt, and I'd love to know your thoughts, I think our generation is doing such an incredible job about making mental health a part of the daily dialogue. You know, there are accounts like Brown Girl Therapy that I'm so grateful for, and and so many different accounts and spaces that are popping up on and offline where where people can now say that I go to therapy, or my Mm -hmm. friends go to therapy, or, oh, I, I think I'd like my parents to go to therapy. And to me, I think that's even a big leap from even five years ago, the way people were talking about this. So I feel that we've made an exponential jump in the right direction. Totally. And I, I totally agree with you where it's like, I, I mean, I didn't grow up around people talking about therapy. Like I feel like, especially in the Asian American community where we used to be so hush hush about it. And I think it really is this group, especially the younger people where I'm like, y'all are so far ahead of where I was at your age. Like it's incredible to see. Um, and I think there's also like just this power of social media and it's one of the positives, I think positives and negatives in certain ways, but it really is a positive in that accounts and people and voices that are able to start to normalize this have done what they've done. And the impact that they've Mm -hmm. had is incredible. Like the fact that it's, totally normal for us to talk about therapy and start yeah. to get the wheels turning on mental health. I think my one, the one thing that I still struggle with, especially with, um, like, again, my parents are super open to that conversation, but I know that's not true for everybody where it's like, how do we start to, if someone is not quite there on like, Hey, let's talk about mental health and address that it's actually something that we need to work on. How do we like flip that table back and say like, Hey, I think this is something that we need to unpack and learn. Um, when you do have someone that's not quite open to that. Sure. Um, and I think that's such a common scenario that the people face every single day. It's a great, great question. What I often find is that Sometimes having the conversation and reframing the words and the purpose of the conversation can be helpful. So, so if um, someone, for example, might say, oh, I want to go to therapy with you and talk to this stranger about our problems, many people might yeah. shut down to that, that presentation of it. And yeah. that, that makes sense. You know, it might seem like an intimidating thing and an uncomfortable thing to do. But what I might suggest in certain cases is to say, hey, I want to be close to you. I want our environment to be more harmonious. I want to get to know you. I want things to be easier between us. And so focusing on that purpose of the conversation and sometimes also offering a compromise that, Mm -hmm. hey, can we go for this many sessions? And if you feel that it's doing nothing, then we don't have to go back right now. Um, Because what I found is that sometimes it takes a while to really get into the groove of talking to a professional about yourself and really exposing yourself. 
and and sometimes giving it a few sessions here and there can get someone in that rhythm that hey this is this is a great thing to do not just for yourself but for the people in your life i would also say that you know if there is a lot of resistance um, from a loved one to going it really does take that one person who is going and doing that work to change things so even if they're not successful in getting you know that family member to go by them just going they're they're really doing a lot of that work on behalf of themselves and the people in their lives and so they, they deserve a lot of credit for that because it's not easy and that can cause changes in the positive direction in relationships and in family dynamics as well yeah like i think there's totally this element of being willing to be vulnerable with a stranger. I think that's what like scares me about, you know, going to therapy where I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to like lay it all out there to like really dig deep and get to these issues. But um, mm -hmm. I think the rewards of it, like you said, it's, it's that one first step that can lead to so many great wins and um, growth, which I think is awesome. And, and no, totally. And speaking to what you said, it is hard to be vulnerable. And, and that's why I do think it's important for people to find that right fit yeah. with a provider. And so if it doesn't feel like it's there in that first or second appointment, it is okay to switch. And, and it, this is also an opportunity to advocate for yourself and to get that connection that serves mm -hmm. you too, because it's going to be a really important working relationship and you should feel comfortable and you should feel like you can trust that person um, with everything you're going to tell them. Um, I also feel like in our generation and especially the older ones, shame keeps people quiet. Yeah, so the things yeah. that bring shame also add to that silence. And, and that's why when you're speaking about the things on Instagram and the speaking up, yes, the, the speaking up and the conversations, they take away that shame because yeah. the shame really is a silencer. And I think it has been for many generations. So when we remove the shame from talking about our feelings and our struggles and our failures, that's a really powerful thing that has a ripple effect. Yeah, for sure. I think you said that really well, where it's like, you don't realize how much of that like shame that you would have mm -hmm. felt growing up can like still carry forward years on. Where like, I grew up thinking I wasn't supposed to do this or that this would result in something bad. And so that, that habit kind of stays with you for years totally. on. And so it's just kind of, kind of getting that strength to beat that shame a little bit and put yourself there. Of course. And having that kindness towards yourself yeah. that you, know, you were doing the best you could with what you had and you're learning and it's a, it's a growth process and it can take the time it takes. Yeah. Um, because I think we're in a very productive culture, which obviously has its pluses, but, but sometimes it, it can be easy to lose sight of the fact that we're allowed to take our time with ourselves. We're allowed to be patient and kind to ourselves. Yeah, for sure. I, I love all of that. I feel like I learn a little bit something more every single time I talk to you. So um, <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, I could keep going on this, but I want to make sure we save time to talk about your book because I think it's incredible. Um, and there's so much we can unpack from that experience too. Um, do you want to maybe share a little bit about your book, Well-Behaved Indian Women, and then we can kind of dive into a little bit from there? Sure. So Well-Behaved Indian Women just released July 14th of this year, 2020. And it's about three generations of women navigating struggles in their relationships and in their careers. Um, Simran is the main character, actually the first character I wrote, and I can talk about that later, who is planning her wedding and thinks everything's going well in her life and then meets this journalist she's been a fan of for many years. And that just throws off everything she thought she knew. Her mother, Nandini, is this overworked family medicine physician who has spent so many years trying to be the perfect Indian mother and wife. And then when an old colleague comes back into her life with an opportunity for her, she has to decide what's really important. And then Nandini's mother and Simran's grandmother, Mimi, uh, lives in India and she teaches all these 
lessons to girls in schools in the village by her house and um, also is keeping a really big secret of her own. So the book follows how the three women come together and also drift apart as they pursue their own goals. And I think what I really loved about this book, because I read it so quickly when it first came out, was I could see parts of myself and my family in each of the characters. And I think it's so powerful when you can really relate to a character. And I think this just comes back to, I spent so much time this year trying to find authors and stories and books that detailed the South Asian experience. Yeah. Um, and it, it was such a hard exercise even like a year ago where I was like, oh my gosh, I know three authors maybe. Yes. And even yeah. in the last year, so many more have um, like come out with books and stories. I'm like, it's incredible to see the growth. So I was so excited yeah. um, when I stumbled upon yours. Um, I'm curious because when I first read the book and I started looking up your work, I was like, oh my gosh, what a great South Asian author. Let me support her. And then I found out you were a psychiatrist after. And I was like, oh my God, wait, she's like actually a doctor too. I'm curious, <laughs> what was the timeline of writing this book? When did this idea hit you? What was the background of the actual process? So I started it in 2008. It's been over 10 years. And I first started it thinking that I was super clever. And of course I wasn't. And I thought, oh, I'm going to write about planning a big fat desi wedding. And it's going to be a fun little romantic comedy and everybody's going to love it. So it originally started as a love triangle between Simran and Kunal planning their engagement or planning their wedding. And then uh, her meeting Neil and what that really does. And, and I thought it would just be a fun and cute story. And then when I was in medical school, and by that point, I'd been working on it probably for about four or five years. When I was in medical school and doing my clinical rotations, I started experiencing a lot of sexist and racist comments. I, I trained in rural parts of Georgia. And I think many times when I would show up to the clinic or, or a hospital, sometimes I was the only person of color that, that, that a patient may have seen that day. And I was completely shocked to hear some of the comments that that came my way during that year. And during one shift, um, actually on my OBGYN rotation, we had 24-hour shifts every other day. I was very sleep deprived and, and I was just in a little bit of a fog. And I remembered my head hitting the pillow and thinking, what would Nandini do when, when she was going through her training? The generation before, she must have heard this stuff on another level. Mm-hmm. And that's really where that character became fuller to me. So I wrote a chapter from Nandini's perspective, and I just fell in love with it. So over the following year, I added four more Nandini chapters scattered throughout the book. And then the day of our wedding, I opened my email, which was a really stupid thing to do looking back. And I had 10 rejections in a row for the manuscript, but all 10 of them said something along the lines of, we like Nandini, would you ever Mm -hmm. consider adding more of her? into your book. And so then while I was in residency, I just added more and more. And then it eventually became the mother-daughter story that it is today. So it was it was a journey filled with a lot of rejections, took a lot longer to write the book and get it published than I ever could have thought. The week that I actually, uh, that it actually came out, I counted all of my rejections that I had accumulated over the decade and it was over 200. Wow. Yeah. I think that is such a good reminder because I'm even guilty of this where I see books come out and I was like, oh my gosh, like they just churned it out. They just like started out, like they just did it right away. And I think what I loved when we had first been messaging is you mentioned, you were like, this was a process that took like 10 years. And that really stuck with me because I was like, if this is not the epitome of a reminder that things are not as linear as we think they always are for people and that they are not as easy as they can be, like you... 
I'm so curious, like what gave you that 200 rejections is a lot. Um, like what gave you that? Like, this is important enough for me to continue doing. Cause I feel like if I had gotten 200 rejections, I'd be like, okay, we're done. Like we'll move on and try something else. Like what, what gave you that like strength and determination to be like, let's bring this book to fruition. Well, I, I went through those moments plenty of times. You know, I thought this is this is just not going to work out. And I tried. I gave it my all. Let me put it away. I threw pity parties in all the time throughout my residency. There was one month where I even wore all black, and my husband said, D- "You've got to stop. <laughs> this isn't even cute for a dramatic little artist." So, um, so I definitely went through periods of wanting to give up. But, but I think the really cool thing about rejections, um, there's so many great things. I'm so grateful for those rejections mm. now that they really helped me go back to the purpose of why I was doing what I was doing. And I knew that when I was struggling also, just like you said, I was struggling to find many books by South Mm -hmm. Asian authors depicting some part of the South Asian experience. Um, When I kept having that struggle, I thought, okay, there's still an opportunity here. There's still something here. And maybe I'll stop when I see so many books out there by South Asian authors that I know all readers have plenty to pick from. But until that day comes, I'm going to still try to put this out there. And the really interesting thing about the rejections um, was that the first one stung a lot, but over time they got easier to receive because it was like a new muscle I was flexing, yeah. that rejection muscle. And I hadn't really had to put that muscle to use before because I was obsessed with things like grades and positive feedback from, from right. others. So this was the first time really that I had to use that muscle. And, and over time when I was flexing it and flexing it, it really did get easier to say, okay, it's not the right fit right now for this person. Um, and the really great thing that started happening was sometimes the rejections came with, with some feedback that, mm-hmm. oh, we didn't like the way this character was developed. We didn't like the plot. And that would actually give me an opportunity to go back to the manuscript and do a rewrite. So I then got the help of, of freelance editors and then some writing partners and was able to write the book again and again and again, because I did need to learn how to write. I didn't know what I was doing when I started, even though I thought I did. And so it was great. I think the rejections actually helped me go back to the purpose of my work, taught me that I still had work left to do. Yeah. And then also just showed me that, you know, things take a lot longer than, than, than I might think they will. And that's an important lesson I think I needed to learn for someone who was so focused on, on doing something and getting a clear outcome from it. I really needed to learn how to fail and to process and internalize failure for the better. Yeah, for sure. And I love that reminder too, where it's like, we don't need to look at failure as the end of the road. It's kind Absolutely. of like the start to a deviated yeah. road or it's kind of where you go from there. Um, and I think it's really cool that that was your experience. I'm curious because I obviously loved all the characters. Um, <laughs> shout out to Neil. I loved Neil. I know he was there to like mess things up, but I was like, okay, Neil, I see you. Um, I'm curious, like for anyone who is, you know, thinking, you know, hey, I'd love to pen a story of some kind, um, you know, obviously coming back to sharing more stories yes. with diverse voices. What was the process of like, I know it sounds like some of the characters were based on um, or their experiences were based on your own experiences and how do you make that fit into this character's world? What thoughts do you have on like, hey, if you're thinking about creating this story, creating more space for diverse voices, what does that process look like for like, how do you go from idea to written book? Like, what does that process look like? So I think um, the process from idea to written book can look different for different people, but I would definitely say that if you have that idea and it's anchored in you, that's a sign. That's a sign that there's something special there. It's got some great energy around it that, that needs to be brought out in some way or another because 
all of the artists I know who have made anything, it started from that, this idea that they just can't, it can't let go of. So I think that's something really special and worth seeing through. Um, when it comes to carrying it through to an actual full book, there are a lot of different routes now that can be taken. And I think that's super cool because, you know, before the internet, was the way it was today, things were a little bit more limited. So now even on Twitter, there are ways to find, and on websites, of course, there are ways to find writing partners. And, yeah. and so some people will find a writing partner who's in the same stage as they are, and you keep each other in check and you check in with each other for your world, word milestones, and you can read each other's drafts and give feedback. There are also things like NaNoWriMo, which is National yeah, Novel yeah. Writing Month. It's the month of November where we're really, it's a community online where people commit to writing a certain number of words each day to finish a draft by the end of the month. So depending on, you know, what, what your work schedule is like, like what your time is like, there's so many different routes to just getting that draft done. But I would say getting that first draft done is, is a really great milestone to, to work to. And just seeing, you know, if you can do it, what does it feel like? What does it give you? What does it bring you? What are the harder parts of it? Do you find that the beginning's really easy and the middle is where things get tough or, or how is it? And I think it's a great way to just get to know yourself as a writer. Um, then from there, you know, either if you have a good writing partner or a group, or a freelance editor, I recommend just getting a different set of eyes on it just to see if somebody else can see things about the book that you may not be able to. And for fiction publishing, the next steps involve getting an agent. And then uh, once you sign with an agent, the agent then actually pitches your book to publishers at the different houses. And then actually the author's taken out of the picture by then. Um, and really the agent and the editor go go with the sales and the deal and, and those types of things. So if you're looking for traditional publishing, that's, that's the route. And then of course there is self-publishing that can be done yeah, as well. For sure. Um, I need to loop back to two questions because yeah. I'm like, Every time I'm like, okay, we gotta, we gotta dissect this too. <laughs> we usually talk for three hours. <laughs> Let's just keep talking. I'm curious. Cause again, as someone who's not actually writing something as a consumer of books, as a reader yeah. of books, it has been very cool for me to see this increase of specifically in the situation, South Asian writers and South yeah. Asian authors and those stories becoming much more common and easier for me to find. Um, I'm curious from your perspective as actually someone who is a part of that wave of growth in those voices, what does it feel like to be a part of that initial growth of these stories? I mean, it's, it's beyond a dream come true because I never thought we'd see this day. And I think, like you said, we're just at the beginning of it. I, I think that each year we're going to see more and more stories and we need that. We've needed that for so long. And while I was actually going through my journey with projections, I sometimes got rejections that said things like, oh, there isn't room for a South Asian book. Um, there already was a South Asian book last year, so there isn't room for another one. And one I think, and done, right? <laughs> I know, exactly, no, exactly. I really internalized those rejections, I think, the most because, mm -hmm. because they told me on some level that there was only room for one of us out there. Mm -hmm. And for so long, I had this hope, you know, at that point that, oh, maybe there's room for another one because there is only one. And when I'd get the opposite message, that really was dejecting at the time. So it's so nice to see that that's not the case. It's not going to be the case. And the publishing industry, you know, the gatekeepers who really make yeah. these sales and put these books out there, they're making that real effort to make sure that things are different. So it's been incredible to see. I saw it first in the young adult market, yeah. and it's still there, and I when love Dimple it. When Dimple met Rishi, one of the first oh ones I read, one love of the best ones. That book 
so, so much. Sunday Menon is amazing. But I agree. That was one of the first books I read as well. And I was just so happy to see this intelligent girl going about her life. And then a guy, you know, coming into the picture and disrupting actually her thing. I I loved it. Yeah. And um, did you watch the, uh, the Netflix adaptation? I I watched it with my mom. Right. Yes. Mismatched. Um, I, it is slightly different from the book because it is set in India. Um, but the characters, I think what they did really well was Dimple is that smart, funny, like she is that character. And I'm like, it's so cool to see a young Indian character, not be preoccupied with marriage. Like it's just, it's so fun. And I thought, I thought it was just a really great watch. Oh, it is. I'm so excited. I mean, I need to watch it actually. I mean, that's going to be my holiday watch because I just want to binge and sit and like take it all in. Um, Sunday is actually at the same agency that I am, though, oh, so, which makes me feel so proud. I fangirl over her all the time. Yeah. But, you know, she's just written so many great books, and and it's been so wonderful to see that then in other parts of the industry as well. So I, I really think this is the start of it, and I think we're going to keep seeing more and more. And we need more and more. You know, I've gotten reviews from people that say everything on the spectrum when it comes to South Asian readers. Mm-hmm. Some have said I relate to this so much, and and I've gotten a few that have said I don't relate to this at all, and I yeah. am South Asian. And I think they're all so valid because there's no way one book can encapsulate everybody's experience. And that really is why we need more books and stories and shows um, and everything. I think that's such an important point because to come back to what you said earlier, where it's like, there is not one token, not Mm. even one token South Asian book. There's not one token Asian book. Like it's not just a one story. Like we have such a breadth of experiences that- it's not, it's not going to cover everyone's experience and no. it's okay if someone doesn't relate to it because it wasn't their experience. Absolutely. And there's, when we don't have as many stories, it puts a lot of pressure on those yeah. stories to encompass something that that's just impossible. And we don't put that same pressure on white stories because there's yeah. so many and we right. accept that. So, so I'm really excited about us getting to that point with, with other stories as well. Was that a part of the reason, and this is what I thought was really interesting about your book, is that there was this intergenerational relationship and it did cover three separate South Asian experiences. Mm -hmm. Was that a part of your thought process? Like, was it important to cover each one of these experiences? And I even, I even think going back to what we were talking about earlier, where there is this intergenerational experience, right? Like what um, Mimi's experience was and kind of her traumas and everything that she had dealt with is so different from Nandini's and Mm -hmm. so on. Right. So was that a part of your thought process as you were building out the story? It wasn't at first. And then once Nandini's character just became fuller to me and took up more space on the page, that was when, and then it also coincided with when I was training in therapy um, mm. during my residency. I feel like all, everything we've just talked about in the conversation is coming together, which is- We so cool, jumped around right? a lot, but it's all coming back together. Yeah, so cool. <laughs> so at, as I actually started learning about family therapy and intergenerational trauma in my own training, that really fed into the mm-hmm. work. And I thought, you know, these characters really are shaped by each other. And they're also shaped by- the lives the other people did yeah. not live. So the women, Nandini and Mimi, felt like they couldn't be, have also created similar right. in a way too. So we're created just as much by the lives we have lived and that our moms lived and, and that they didn't live. Yeah. I think about that so much now, not to go on a whole tangent where it's like so much of like what my mom and my Nani experienced, they, they didn't get an ounce of what yeah. I have here. And the more I realize that and the more I try to reconcile that, the more I think it makes me grateful for everything they did because I I wouldn't have this experience without what they went through and everything that they didn't get to experience. And it's like, I even think back to now where it's like, sometimes you get frustrated with your parents for like being Mm -hmm. in your business, but it's like, 
you're getting to do so much that they didn't get to do. And they just, I feel like they sometimes want to like live that life through you. Oh, absolutely. Um, and absolutely. It's, it's a weird feeling to reconcile. It is. It is. And, and it's such a conscious thing, you know, you having that moment to take that pause and put that together is so insightful. I, I think about that. My parents right now have so much input when it comes to my child, yeah. uh, my baby. And then I take a step back, just like you were saying for you. And I think, wow, when we were babies, they were just trying to make it. They yeah. didn't get to focus on these little daily nitty gritty things that are happening. And so that's such a great reminder that you put out there and, and stories and learning our family stories, I think do make us more empathetic and compassionate and, and grateful. I think for yeah. what we have to, they do so much for us. For sure. Um, well, before we wrap up, I have to know because you're yeah. working on book number two. Yes. Um, is there anything you can share with me? What was your, like, were you like, I loved book one. I loved the process <laughs> of writing. Let's do this all over again. How did you come back to like, let's do this again? It was a very different process. And I think, well, I think everybody's had such a different year, obviously in 2020. So, so doing it in 2020 and with a baby made it an entirely different landscape than, than what, you know, well-behaved Indian women was. And also doing it in a much quicker timeline. Mm -hmm. I had over 10 years to percolate on this first book and to see it through and develop and went through a lot in my own life. This one, it was a much quicker timeline. So I actually finished the first draft right when I was going into labor. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought that would happen. I ended up delivering my son two weeks earlier. And so I was on the hospital bed typing oh. uh, and then, and then handed over my laptop. So it just, the slew of experiences that came with this, I never could have imagined, but, but it's been fun to learn about the writing process as a job instead of just as a passion, which well-behaved Indian yeah. women was for so many years. So it's been nice just saying, hey, I can work on a deadline. I can get this many words done. I can craft a story. But yes, absolutely. Doing it during a year like 2020 has been challenging in a lot of ways, a lot of ways I couldn't have anticipated. I'm very excited. Um, do we have a date in which we can look forward to? So it'll be out in June and oh, that's soon. Yeah, it's very soon. It's very soon. And, um, and I can share that it's about, it's about another South Asian family. They're not related to the characters in well-behaved Indian women. It's not a sequel, but the main theme that actually is explored in the second book is mental health. I'm so excited. I am. Um, let me put a reminder on my calendar now. Well, mental health and stand-up comedy and imposter syndrome, I would say are all, all important things. <laughs> I just, I got so fascinated with female comedians and the things they navigate and go through. And so I thought, you know, what would it be like if a rebellious Desi girl wanted to be a stand-up comedian, but also struggled with depression and anxiety? You know, how would, yeah. how would that factor into her life and how would she make it through? And so that, that main question is really what drove the story. I'm so excited. I'm oh, so thank excited. You so much. Um, thank we'll you. make sure to put some links to your site and everything so people can know when the book comes out and all that oh, great stuff. Um, of course. Um, well, before we wrap up, we always do a little rapid fire. I sometimes Ooh. get groans. I sometimes get excitement. So um, <laughs> it depends on how people feel about uh, a rapid fire session. Sure. Um, so are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> First question. How do you take your tea? Oh, I don't. I just drink coffee. Oh, I have not gotten that answer yet. <laughs> Don't drink tea. How do you take your coffee then? Black. Black. Classic. Yes. Um, who is someone that you really admire? My son. He just goes after everything without fear and without inhibition. And, and it's something I learn from all the time. That's so sweet. Sometimes <laughs> you have to watch the people around you, including the youngins. So oh, absolutely. Um, what did you have for breakfast today? So I'm very boring. 
most of the time I almost always eat a yogurt with pistachios in it, but it was just my birthday and I've been eating cookie cake every morning because <laughs> that is when, the best answer. <laughs> when you're in your thirties in your parents' house and you don't really know how old you really are because of that, you know, you just get to regress when you want. So just cake. eat the damn cake. Like yeah. it's fine. <laughs> So it's, it was a piece of cookie cake that had some letters on it from the happy birthday. <laughs> I love it. I love that so much. Um, what is something that you really love about yourself? Cur the curiosity. I think I've always had a very curious, curious state of mind. And that's helped me learn a lot about the world and people and has made it so I'm rarely ever bored. Even when my mind wanders, it's a nice thing. That's a really good one. I like that one a lot. What is a book you'd recommend? Who I would say one of my favorite books from the past year was Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming. So good. Loved so it good. so much. She has this way of writing about an experience that nobody else has really gone through in this world, but yeah. make you feel like you relate to her, which I think is a gift. And she imparts her wisdom and her life experiences. And I, I just think it's fantastic. I love that book. And I, I don't know anybody I wouldn't recommend it to. Oh, I mean, she yeah. is ultimate goals. She, she's she incredible. Just, I'm obsessed with her. I really, <laughs> I, I just got Barack Obama's memoir too. So I'm really excited about diving into that. It's so funny. So my dad and I are sharing a copy of Aww. Barack's book. Um, he has finished the whole thing and I am on part one. So <laughs> we've like, he just, you know, he's like, he spends a lot of like quiet time. So he just like quietly flips oh, through it without giving me an update as to where he is. And he, now he's done. And I'm like, okay, I have 600 pages left. So I know no big deal. You have to tell me what you think. That's awesome. I love it. Um, if you could have a skill or talent that you don't already, what would it be? I wish I liked outdoor things. I know that sounds silly, but, but I actually, I just don't enjoy things like hiking and being outside. And I think people who do really find so much fulfillment from that so I think I would, I would like some outdoor talent. I don't know what that really means, but you know, people who, who are just really good with water sports and, yeah. and all those different things. I think some people have a knack for that. And I've just always been that awkward kid who in gym class and would just kind of stay off to the side and didn't like running on the track or going in the water. So I would, I think I would be a more outdoor person. I think that counts. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite ice cream flavor? Actually, it's one of Malai's flavor. It's their oh, rose. It's yes, their rose. So good. So good. <laughs> it, we're actually moving um, in New York and we're moving two blocks away from Malai's. <gasps> Dangerous. I know. Samir told me, you're going to get that every day. But Malai just makes fantastic ice cream flavors that are just, just universally loved. Just so good. Honestly, if this is not another plug for all the listeners who listened to that episode already, <laughs> get yourself some Malai ice cream. So good. Uh, what is something you're curious about right now? I'm curious about how the world is going to look in one month and three months. I think yeah. we have all been through so much unexpected change and a lot of grief and a lot of growth. And so I'm really curious about how, how things are going to go for the next few months because people have just been put through so much over the yeah. last year. Yep, for sure. I know it's always a guessing game, kind of what are we going to get next? So Absolutely. Um, and it's shown us so much about, about our, our yeah. human race, really. Yeah, for sure. Uh, last question and closing out our episode with, uh, what is a piece of joy or wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners? I would say to talk to yourself with the kindness you give to your friends. You know, we often think that our, our family, or our friends are the main voices in our heads. And really, we are that main voice in our heads. And we don't ever get the opportunities to sit back and think, 
how am I really speaking to myself? What am I telling myself about me? And if it's something that we can take out the time to do in a way that's kind and, and with grace, that I think that it can help a lot of us to do that. That Just is a wonderful talk. reminder, a well-needed reminder too for a lot of us. Especially um, with the holidays and everything. Oh my gosh, for sure, for sure. Well, just closing out, where can people find you? Where can people find your work? What sources and links do we need to share with everybody? Oh, sure. So my website's uh, www.somiadabe.com and then I'm on social media at Somia J. Dabe. Yay. And then everyone keep an eye out for the second book and you can find Well-Behaved Indian Women on a myriad of bookstores. Support the local bookstores if you can. Yeah. Um, but I would highly recommend the book, especially as a good stocking stuffer or a Christmas gift or gift to yourself at any time of year. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad we got to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thank y'all so much for listening to today's episode. If you're interested in following along with Somia, you can follow her on Instagram at Somia J. Dave and at her website, somiadave.com. Thanks again for listening and we'll see y'all next time.